Perhaps you've been um, hearing on the news a lot about making America great again. Making America great again. It's become a popular campaign slogan. Let's make America great again. Who would agree we all want to see America great again? I think we, there's a, regardless of your political affiliation, yes, Lord, we want to see America great again. But before we can achieve this lofty goal, we need to ask, why did it cease being great to begin with? And how does one even define greatness? Because once you begin to answer those questions, then you may begin to come up with the answer of what will make America great again. Can I give you a truth, a simple truth? It's a kingdom truth. In kingdom thinking, how do I define kingdom? That we are a part of the kingdom of God. We answer to a higher authority. When you've been born again, you're born into God's kingdom, God's way of doing politics, God's way of doing business. We are a part of that kingdom. And a kingdom truth, in kingdom thinking, complex problems have simple solutions. That's worth writing down. Complex problems always have simple solutions if you are walking in kingdom thinking. Oftentimes we miss the solutions God has for us because the nature of the problem is so complex, we look for a very complex solution because we think they're going to equal one another. But in reality, we oftentimes miss the simple solutions of God because the nature of the problem is so complex. Isn't it true? Don't you feel like when you're watching politics and news, it's so complicated. But when God comes on the scene, the answer is always very simple. This can be highly counterintuitive for us unless we train ourselves to think kingdom. What will make America great again? Or any nation for that matter? Well, I can tell you what will make great again. I appreciate Bruce uh, Serrard on Facebook. If you read Facebook, I hope you're attuned to that. But if you read Facebook, he put, to answer this question, a genuine, I like it, Holy Ghost revival. Can I say, Bruce, amen? A genuine Holy Ghost revival. I agree 100%. And I believe part of that revival will be precipitated by this. For godly men to take back their rightful place in their homes and their families and their communities. And with that, you agree? And with that, may I just say happy Father's Day to each and every man in this place. And I believe within you gentlemen, within you dads, is the potential to make America great again by first making your homes great again, the church great again, the people of God great again. Sociologists and anthropologists alike will all maintain that civilization itself depends on the stability of the nuclear family as God defines it. We see when there's the breakdown in the home and the breakdown in the family, society itself begins to crumble. What will make America great again, what will make your home great again, is not figuring out the economic woes. There's something more fundamental than that. And the enemy has been working diligently to destroy the foundation of civilization. Civilization is built up on the stability of the home and the nuclear family. Not just society, but also the faith itself is anchored to the stability of the family. 
And there's been a satanic agenda that has been set loose in the world today to erode this basic foundation with a multi-pronged attack. Do you believe the enemy likes to work on many fronts at the same time? He's working on many fronts. Just to name a few, radical feminism, pornography, abortion, divorce, abandonment, homosexuality, redefining marriage, systematic emasculation of manhood, neutralizing gender itself, to just name a few. You see, the enemy's been working overtime for a very long time to accomplish this. We didn't arrive here overnight. He's been working his plan. It's important for us as men of God and the people of God to pause for a moment and to reorient ourselves to the world around us and what is really going on. Can I just speak to those of us that's been in the church life and church world for over 30 years? Sometimes we have the tendency to insulate ourselves in our Christian bubble. We come to church, we listen to our Christian TV, we listen to our Christian radio, we read our Christian books, we read our Christian newspapers, and what happens is we lose touch with what has happened to society around us. And we are not in a very good place. We need to reorient ourselves with the world around us so then we can mobilize and attack. Jeremiah 6, 16. I want us to meditate on this verse for a moment. Jeremiah 6, 16, thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. There's a moment in time that we as the people of God got to stand back, take a look and say, Lord, what are the ancient paths? What must we return to to get back to where we belong? We understand we begin to get away from God when we lose our first love. The word admonishes us to return and to do the deeds you did at first. That's what will make America great. That's what will make your home great. That's what will make you great in the things of God, to discover the ancient paths. I think it's funny because we're always looking for something new, something latest, something the greatest. But sometimes we've got to go way back to define exactly what we need to be. So this morning, I want us to go way back for a few moments to talk about one of the ancient paths. That's the key to, I believe, unlocking a Holy Ghost revival. That's a key to unlocking what God wants to do in us and, and in our homes and in our communities. So I want to give you the backstory, if you will. It's a quick sweep through the chapters in the book of Genesis, Genesis 12 through 14. We're not going to read them all, but we're going to take a sweeping look at this to look at a particular guy in the Bible that I've always had a fascination with, but never done a real study of, and his name is Lot. His name is Lot. So let's start with the backstory. Genesis 12, verse 4. So Abram... He's called Abram now. Remember, he had a name change to what? Anybody know? Abraham, right? But at this point in the story, he is Abram. So when you hear his name, it's referring to Abraham. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
Now, you may remember the story. Abraham was called out of his home country called Ur of the Chaldees. He left everything that was familiar to him to follow God who said, come with me, Abram, and I will show you another place. And God took his hand. Abraham took God's hand and they began to move forward with some of his family, including his nephew Lot went with him. So they begin to make the journey. Again, we're going to do a quick sweep. They begin to make the journey off to the promised land. And on the way, they experienced a famine in the land. So they had to go down into Egypt to be able to survive for a few years. While in Egypt, they experienced a great deal of prosperity. And when the famine resided, they went back toward the promised land again. But God blessed them immensely there, their herds and their cattle, and they grew and grew and grew. And we, and we find out that their, their herds got so big that Lot and Abram reached a place where they could no longer travel together. They were having, if you will, pasture and personnel issues. So they had to divide. There wasn't enough pasture and the personnel was all fighting with each other. So that we can no longer quite travel together, so we got to part company and take different paths. Now, Abram allowed his nephew Lot, and I suspect they got pretty close to one another. Even though he was his uncle, I suspect over time Lot really began to look to Abram, if you will, as a father, certainly a spiritual father who was willing to go with him on this incredible journey. And Abram allowed Lot to make a decision to choose which direction to go, this spiritual son of his. Can I just speak to you for a second, moms and dads? As parents, we're all going to reach a place where we have to allow our children to make a choice in what direction to go and to watch them live in the ramifications of their choices. Perhaps you've been there. If not, you're going to be there soon enough that there'll come a moment in time when no longer you can travel along with them. You will have pasture and personnel issues if you try to continue to move along together. There comes a moment when you have to let them go and you have to let them make a choice and then walk out the consequences of those choices. It's one of the most difficult days as a parent when you watch your kids set forth. I remember when my oldest son, Matthew, got his driver's license, when these, kind of one of these moments as they begin to grow up. As a dad, you sort of have this like, a knot in your stomach. Who's been there? This knot in your stomach when you see your child for the very first time take off in a, in a car. Well, he had his license for about six or seven months and, and, it, and, it, and it came time for the boys to go see their grandmother in um, Alabama, about a three hour trip. So Matthew and my two sons, younger sons, just went off together to Alabama in a car with Matthew driving and the two of them. I remember standing in the driveway, panicking. Now, son, this is what you do. This is how you go down I-20. This is what you do when you get to Birmingham. This is the exit. Now, watch out. There's a really sharp term getting on 65 going north out of Birmingham. I was just giving them all these instructions, just fear and panic filling my heart. But as I was watching them go, they were ready. They were prepared. But yeah, I was nervous watching them take off for the first time. As a parent, this is so difficult to do. But the only choice you really have is to stand back. Okay, Lord. They're in your hands. Watch them go. And Abram did this with Lot. He began to make a choice. But in this moment here, Lot would make a bad decision. You know, it's all wonderful when our kids are making good decisions. 
We don't have to intervene there, do we? But when they're making bad decisions, the tendency is to jump in and to intervene. Can I tell you, moms and dads, sometimes that may be the worst thing that you do. Sometimes it's in their bad decisions that will hasten the day of reckoning in their own life. And then they come to the truth on their own versus you, versus you trying to tell them. So here Lot would make a very poor decision on which direction to go. It's found in Genesis chapter 13 and verse number 10. And it's worth looking at for a few moments. Genesis 10, 13, verse 10. Genesis 13, verse 10. It says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan. He's been given the responsibility you took and now he's looking around him that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. Now, when you observe this passage, you can tell some things are going on with Lot here. We first see in his decision making, he was a little bit selfish. Have you ever noticed a selfish streak in your children? I've not noticed any in mine. It's completely unique to you, but I will just speak hypothetically. We first see a little bit of selfishness in him. We noticed even before Abram decided, he took the very, the very best that was offered. He took the plain. He took all the good land with not a second thought to what his uncle might need. So we see, we see a little hint of selfishness. Also, we can discern from this passage that Lot's decision was based strictly on appearances. Appearances. It looked good. It looked great. What's going to meet my needs right now? But sadly, it took him in a different direction away from the promised land that Abram was going toward. Now, moms and dads, this becomes very difficult for us when we see our kids choosing a different path than we have blazed and we are going. But this was the decision Lot made and Abraham allowed him to make it. This would prove over the course of Lot's life and his family to be a very destructive decision and it started right here with a little bit of selfishness, only judging things by appearance would be the beginning of a lot of problems in Lot's life. You see, his intent was only to stay in the valley. In fact, the Bible teaches us that he would get in the valley, but he would um, pitch his tents toward Sodom. But we find that as we journey through Lot's life, he didn't just stay in the valley, but ultimately we would find him actually in the city of Sodom itself, absorbed in that wicked culture. Oh, a slippery slope it is when we begin to move in the wrong direction. Even though it may be calculated, we want to play it safe, but can I tell you, the enemy knows how to grease the skids, doesn't he? He's never going to sell you on Sodom, but he'll sell you on a nice big pasture many, many miles outside of. But can I tell you, it's full of banana peels. As you begin to get closer and closer, you slide further and further toward that. It is a slippery slope. One writer described Lot as a young man who was weak in his devotions, worldly in his desires, and thus wrong in his decisions. Can I tell you, we become wrong in our decisions when we are weak in our devotions. 
Because when we're weak in our devotions, our desires become worldly, and we are not fit to make very wise decisions. It is a progressive process. So Lot has moved away. He's finding himself in not so good a spot. Next we find, as these chapters unfold, that we are introduced to the very first war in the Bible that's taking place. The first time war is ever mentioned is found in these chapters. Now we don't want to bog down in a history lesson this morning, but suffice to say that there were four powerful tribes from the north that came down to punish tribes in the south, which included Sodom, which sadly is now Lot's new home. So he gets into the city, he's caught up in this war, and Lot is taken captive by these northern tribes. Sad day for Lot. We find out in Genesis 14, 12, they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Lot started off with Abram. He drifted into selfishness, planned to stay only in the valley, but pulled even deeper into the city, and then the enemy had him in his clutches. Now note Abram is kind of watching all this transpire over the course of time, probably getting word back from some of his people. But something happened here. Abram was patient as long as Lot was sowing his wild oats and doing his thing, watching from a distance. But when the enemy captured him, Things change. Now, hope you're trekking with me here. Things change. Sometimes the enemy overplays his hand. You believe that? Sometimes the enemy, in his confidence and his arrogance and his pride, he overplays his hand. And this is a moment the enemy overplayed his hand. Now, one of Abram's own has been taken captive, and his only hope is to be rescued. Everybody say rescue. Rescue. And this brings us to our primary passage this morning when we begin to see Abram's response to this whole situation. Genesis 14, 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men. Say trained men. Born in his house. 318 and went in pursuit as far as Dan. I want to read that again. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, look at his actions. He led out his trained men, born in his house, 318 and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Again, what will make America great again? Or any nation for that matter? For godly men to rise up and take back, if you will, the thrones in their own homes. This passage teaches us Abram had 318 men that were ready, willing, and able to go on this rescue mission to get Lot. They were ready, willing, and able. So must we be. Part of what we must be, men, if I can speak to you directly are men who are ready and willing and able to be, if you will, rescued rescuers. Those of us has been rescued by the cross and empowered by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to literally go on rescue missions. You see, only truly rescued people can rescue anyone. When you've been rescued by Jesus, 
because of the cross and filled with his Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead, then you too can be a rescuer. We are nothing more than rescued rescuers. So I want to talk this morning briefly about what it means to be ready, what it means to be willing, and what it means to be able. First one, these men were ready. It says he led out his trained men. Remember, this is the first war that's ever been mentioned in the Bible. Abram knew that they were living in hostile territory. This did not go unbeknownst to Abram. God had called him into a monotheistic relationship with him in a very polytheistic culture full of pagan worship and idolaters. This was not a safe place to be. He knew that, that danger could arise at any moment. If you're over 35 years old, you need to retrain your thinking a little bit. We no longer live in a safe culture. We no longer live in a safe world. 35, 40, 50 years ago, guess what? There was a shared morality within the country. Doesn't mean everybody knew Jesus, but we all had something in common. We had a shared understanding of what was right and what was wrong. Can I tell you, if you haven't like looked outside lately, that has changed. We've moved beyond that. We now live in a very hostile culture to the things that we hold dear and value, the things that we want to impart to our children. This was a priority for Abram to have trained, trained men. This is one of the unique priorities I believe that we're going to have here at Newbridge as a church family, beginning with the youngest boy. I think the number is kind of interesting here. 318. That tells me it wasn't some like there was a, about 300 or 300 ish. That was 318. That speaks to specificity. That speaks to Abram knew the exact number of the trained men that he had. Very intentional. What were they trained to do? They were trained to fight. They were trained to do battle. You may know who Sun Tzu is. He's the fifth century Chinese military strategist who wrote the book called Art of War. Who am I talking about? Art of War. If you ever tried to read that, that's quite a challenge. But we look to that as the foundational work on all military strategy written by this guy five centuries B.C. And in chapter five in the Art of War, Sun Tzu takes time and he, and he lets the readers know and he explains the importance of defending existing positions until a commander is capable of advancing from those positions in safety. Did you catch that? He explains the importance of defending existing positions until a commander is capable of advancing from those positions in safety. That means the first place that we must be able to defend is our heart and our families. That we got to be sure we can hold that ground before we advance any further. We tend to want to advance outside of that which we can protect. Well, Sun Tzu understood we got to protect home base before we can advance any army and capture any ground and hold on to it. 
Pretty wise, isn't it? The Bible clearly teaches us that if we can't manage our own homes, then we cannot manage anything else. To focus in upon this, to train ourselves and to train our children to be able to fight and to do battle. Now, if just for a second, let me just do a plug here as it relates to Newbridge. Do you realize we are in a hostile environment? Moms and dads, your kids are living in a hostile environment. If your kids have access to one of these things, the hostile environment is in their pocket. It's on their computer. It's in front of them all the time. The hostile environment is now in your home. It's plugged in right sitting on the bedside table. It's everywhere. And we must be about training ourselves and training our children to be able to fight the battles that are confronting them right now. Listen, you're a part of a church family. Can I tell you, there's some actual, some low-hanging fruit right here that you can avail yourself of to get your kids here. We've got a tremendous kids' ministry. 9 a.m. is our elevate hour. Get your kids here. They're being taught the Word of God. They're being trained. Minimal effort on your part. May have to get up a little early, but isn't it worth it? Yes. Isn't it worth it to train your kids? Get them here. At 9 a.m. and train the word, the forge for middle school and high school students, 5 p.m. on Sundays. They're going through God's word. They're praying. They're equipping themselves. Are you getting your kids here to be trained? If not, maybe you should be. Maybe on Wednesday night you're getting them here. You're demonstrating to them. This is important. Get trained. Low-hanging fruit. The first, the first Saturday of every month, going to the nursing home, ministering to kids. The third, going to the Dream Center, ministering to them. Listen, our kids have the capacity to be trained. The Word says train up your kids in the way they should go, and they should not depart from it. Just yesterday, we had a group of young people go to the Winder Nursing Home to minister to people. My son, Mark, and my daughter-in-law, Delaney, who are now older, they're grown, 18 and 20, I guess, right? They're, they're grown. They started doing this when they were children going to the nursing home. Guess what? They're older now. They own their own. Got in the car, drove to the nursing home to minister. I was marveled by that. I said, why did they do that? You know why? Because they were trained to do it when they were young. And because they were trained to do it, now they actually want to do it. You saw a video clip earlier of our kids going out and ministering. You saw them having a really good time, but it's a good time with a purpose. It's a good time to minister to children. I want you to watch the second part of that video now and watch what kids are able to do when they minister to other people. Don't sell your kids what they have the capacity to do for the kingdom of God, but they must be trained to do it. Can I tell you something? You may think, well, I don't have any children. That's okay. Listen, I was the first person to get born again in my family. Before my mom and dad became a Christian, there was a 60-year-old man that took interest in a 12-year-old kid. And he took me to places, and he took me to prayer meetings, and he took me to church, and he took me here, and he took me there. And what happened? He trained me up when I was young. Maybe you don't have any kids. Listen, find one. They're in your neighborhood. They're around you. They're in church. Don't dismiss them when you walk by. Can I tell you, a 12-year-old is an awkward and a weird and a strange age. And most of us said, let's leave them alone. But for some reason, when I was 12 years old, this man took notice of me and took my hand and poured into me. And now I stand here as a result 
of somebody taking time to train them up. Train them up. Listen, moms and dads, listen to me. Children's doors to you are wide open. When they're kids, they're wide open. Our responsibility is to shove as much of the word and much training and much experiencing of God as you can while that door is open. But can I tell you something? The moment the onset of puberty hits, the door begins to close rapidly. If you wait until your kids and your grandkids and your nieces and your nephews and your neighbors are 12 years old, the door starts shutting very, 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 very fast. And it'll ultimately seal shut your ability to influence them toward the things of God. If you've got small kids, if you've got young kids, don't be fraudulent with the time that you have with them to influence them into the things of the kingdom of God. People say we're losing our kids in college. No, we lost them at five. We lost them at six. We've entertained them and entertained them and we never gave them the gospel. We never gave them Jesus. We never gave them the power of the Holy Spirit. They never got a chance to taste and see that the Lord is good. To base that taste on the taste of the world. Whose job is it? Dad? Mom? Grandparent? It's on us while the door is open to move. God built us to fight these fights Psalm 144.1 says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He's made us to fight these battles. Not only ready, but we also must be willing. These men were willing. They went in pursuit as far as Dan. The desire was there and the willingness was there to go the distance Gentlemen, can I give you some advice? Take back the throne in your home in all humility. Being a pastor gives me a wide perspective upon observing people's lives. It's just the nature of what we do. You get to see a lot of people and a lot of families and a lot of things that play themselves out. And one thing I have observed over the years is how often children are calling the shots in the home. Listen, the children have become the Supreme Court and they are legislating from the bench. They are dictating. The tail is wagging the dog, if you will. I don't want to beat you up, but I want to shout it from the rooftops. Listen, dads, fathers, grandfathers, I encourage you to go back and take the throne. It's yours. God gave it to you. Go back and establish a righteous rule. If your kids are sitting on the supreme bench in your home and they're dictating and they're calling all the shots and you're having to consult them, you're actually having to argue your case in front of them to see if they're going to agree. Do you realize that's what's happening? I'm sorry. I'm just really aggravated by this whole thing. But it's... But, it's, but it's, it's, it's of epidemic proportion in so many Christian homes today that children are on the bench legislating and the parents are cowering to keep them happy. Can I tell you, God has given you the power to go back and dethrone them. You're still stronger than they are, aren't they? Dethrone them. You're not going to rule anymore, son, daughter. I'm taking back my throne. Get down. You help your little two-year-old off the throne and he goes around. <laughs> Take it back. That's kind of funny, but let me just tell you about what this kind of, kind of looks like. 
There was once a male, right, who was born to be a king. But this male went through a difficult thing early in his life and he had to leave home and he tried to distance himself from the responsibilities. He got further and further away. He was not who he was called to be. But one day this young male had an encounter with his older male father that reminded him of who he was. To go back and to reclaim who you are. And he went back and he found his home and he found it completely decimated. Can you learn from Simba? That in you, brothers, is the roar of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the most difficult march you may ever make will be the one to take back the throne in your home. It's possible it's been decimated. It's possible it's been ravaged by the abrogation of your absence. But God has licensed you. He's charged you. He has called you to go and take it back. It's time to recognize that the minds and the hearts of our sons and our daughters and our wives like Lot have been captured by the enemy and they are in need of a rescued rescuer. And you are that man, you are that dad, you are that uncle, you are that grandfather, you are that one that God has commissioned to go and to take back that which the enemy has stolen so flagrantly in your presence. It's time. It's time. But we must begin to remember who we are. I love the scene in The Lion King when he hears from his father. Remember. Remember who you are. Remember who you belong to. And it brings us to the last little point here. These men were able. They were able. It says in this passage in Genesis 14, 14, that they were born in the household of Abram. These weren't some random militias or mercenaries that Abram hired. They were born and trained up in his own house. They were like sons to him. All 318 were. Can I tell you, when you were born again, you have a new father and you got an incredible elder brother and your identity has been changed. You have Jesus in you, the hope of glory. You have a new lineage. I don't care how your mama was or your daddy was or your grandfather was. You now have a new father. Then the moment you were born again, you went from being the created now to being a son. You went from being in just God's image now to part of his family. And the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. He has now empowered you to be this. You're a son. You're a son. Don't look down on yourself. Perhaps in the moment of the greatest shame and condemnation, the younger son in the story of the prodigal son, when he came up to his father, thinking the only thing he was worthy to do was to be a slave in his house. He, could you imagine walking up, no shoes, smelling like pig, head held down in shame. The father right there. We know that he put a robe on him and shoes on him and he put a ring on his finger. Can I tell you that ring was not just for jewelry. That ring was permission to transact family business. You know, that's what the ring was used for in that culture. 
It was the equivalent of you giving your son the credit card. You giving your son the power of attorney. Now, can you imagine? Here is this son who failed so desperately. Yet God, the father, says, here's the ring. You're my son. I'm giving you the keys to my kingdom. Remember who you are. And he identified him. Not only identified him, but he equipped him and he made him able to transact family business. Can I tell you, my brother, God has put the ring on your finger. You are his son. You are his child. You've been endowed by the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Do you think that same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead can enable you to take back your home? To take back your community? To alter the culture in your workspace and environment? Yes. But you got to remember who you are and the world the community, your wife, your children are waiting on us to make that climb up Pride Rock and begin to roar. And when you begin to roar, you may think you're going to sound like a cat, but can I tell you, God has given you Jesus in you. And when you begin to roar, it's going to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I promise you, things will happen because God is behind it. The world is waiting on us. Look at this passage. Romans 8. I love this. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the revealing of the who? The sons of God, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. And this, my friends, is what we are being called up to, like the worship team to come down as we begin to get ready. And I want you guys to leave here encouraged today. May I just use the bully pulpit for a moment and dictate a little bit of policy the policy, the mission, the vision of Newbridge Church is not going to be just to have a men's ministry. The vision of this place going forward is we want to have trained men, beginning when they're boys, trained up. We want to know who they are. We want 318 trained men who are ready to fight, who know how to fight, who have become rescued rescuers. And that is our intention and that is our plan, not just to entertain so we can be equipped to first listen to the advice of Sun Tzu and make sure we can maintain what's behind the four walls of our home before we begin advancing forward. This is what God is raising up in this place. This is, I maintain and I believe if you fix the man, fix, right? If you fix the man, you have fixed the marriage. You have fixed the home. You have fixed the church. You have fixed the community. I do not agree. I do not agree with neutralizing gender. I do not believe that we have the license to determine for ourselves that which has been anatomically proven and also God-ordained, male and female. Because when you begin to alter that, you begin to remove it. And what have you successfully removed? Your biblical headship. God has called us men to do this. 
to be rescued rescuers. And we are beginning here as a church family, begin to prioritizing how we raise up trained men. Abram did it. So must we. It can't be something we just add on. Oh, we have a men's ministry. We must be diligent in raising and training them up.